officer conducting the critique must, over time, gather the trust of the people with whom he works. Enchanted Sky Media. 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 Code 3, the podcast for firefighters. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again on Code 3. Does your department require after-action reports once you wrap up a fire? What about an immediate post-fire critique right there on the fire ground? Today's guest says there's a lot of value in doing one. Dr. Harry Carter is a fire protection consultant based in Adelphia, New Jersey. He's chairman of the Board of Commissioners of Howell Township Fire District 2, and he retired from the Newark Fire Department as a battalion commander. Dr. Carter holds a Ph.D. in organization and management from Capella University in Minneapolis. And Harry Carter joins me now to talk about post-incident critiques. Welcome to Code 3. Hello, Scott. Glad to be with you today. Good to have you here. So let's start with the basics. What do you mean by a post-incident critique? It is a, a process which the incident commander uses on the fire ground right at the end of the fire, before anybody picks up hose, before anybody leaves, to discuss what went on, what they felt should have been done better, what you thought should have been done better. But you always start out with a positive note. You always praise before you move into the uh, things that you think or they think went wrong. So what are the benefits of doing this right away instead of waiting until you can get everybody together later? Well, it, it's it's kind of technical. The, the, the educational concept of recency, those things which have happened most recently are remembered quickly. So while you're still there and can remember, you should do it while it's fresh in people's minds. Is there a specific way that you feel it should be done for maximum effect? No, actually, it, it's up to the individual to structure it uh, in a way that's comfortable for them. When I did it uh, in Newark when I was a battalion chief, uh, it was very comfortable because I I would bring the guys together. Uh, if the building was tenable and it was cold, we'd go in out of the cold night air and uh, discuss what had gone on. And sometimes I would be quite surprised. Uh, I can recall a night we had a fire up in Valesburg, and uh, when I brought the gang together afterwards, I said, well, what do you think... Uh, what do you think you could have done better? And one of the guys on 21 Engines says, well, you know, Chief, I learned that you don't stretch four lengths when you're at the front door. <laughs> and, and I recall I recall pulling up because my quarters were not nearby. It took me about, uh, oh, seven to eight minutes to get there. And most times they were able to make mistakes and correct them before I got there. But there was hose flaked out all over the street with knots in it and kinks in it, and it took a while to get the line into play. But now, at the same fire, one of the old guys shocked me when he said, well, you know, boss, I think we could have broke a lot less windows. I think we broke too many windows. And 
the younger guys looked at the old guy and they were amazed that he would own up to that. But in effect, he was probably right. Uh, I've been in the business long enough to remember an edition of the Oklahoma Red Books when I was still in the Air Force 50 years ago that it was uh, the forcible entry book. And one of the lines in the first paragraph of the book was, try before you pry. Well, in this case, they probably should have tried before they pried and broke and bent the building up. But again, it was all fresh in their minds. And because the guys trusted me, they would share with me. And that's the key here. The officer conducting the critique must, over time, gather the trust of the people with whom he works. One of the things I always have thought, my people did not work for me. They worked with me. There's a distinct difference in how you treat people when you consider them working with you. I think that's a very valid idea, Scott. I would have to agree. Now, what happens when people disagree about how things were done and what was done? How do you avoid an argument right there on the fire ground? Well, actually, I don't think I ever saw an argument. But, you know, a disagreement is different from an argument. An officer can mediate a difference and head it off at the pass, as they say in the old Western movies. You don't let it get out of control. I mean, it, sometimes you have to raise your voice. You don't yell, but you can raise your voice for getting for, your message. For a fact, right. Yeah, you, 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 have to, you have to get your point across. But let me back up a little bit. The key is having the people trust you. Now, my brother and I were both battalion chiefs in Newark. We worked on the same shift, and we worked in adjoining battalions. So literally you could say, I was my brother's keeper, but he and I always took the part of the men against the city. I mean, yeah, we all work for the city, and yeah, I'm supposed to represent the the, the headquarters to the men, but uh, I always took the crap from City Hall or from fire headquarters rather than letting it run downhill to the men. If I thought that something should be discussed, I would do it in my way. Never yelling, always discussing, always bringing it to the attention of the people in a, in a non-threatening manner. And the key for me was always public praise, private criticism. Never yell at anyone in front of other people. I saw other chiefs do that, and it just angered me to no end. Because that's not how you used to do it. Not at all. Now, this sounds like it was something that you did, maybe your brother did it. Was it common for other battalion chiefs to do these sort of uh, debriefings? No. No, it wasn't. My brother and I were the only two that did it. And I did it more often than he did, but that's because he had so many more fires than I did. He was uh, He was in the busiest battalion in the city, and... My battalion was busy, but not as busy as his. It's, uh, however, a lot of times, even if you don't have a chance uh, for the debriefing, like in this weather, like right now where I am, it's it's 15 degrees with a, with a wind, so I guess it's chill factor of down near zero. You don't leave the people out there. You bring them back to the firehouse. And many lessons in my career 
were learned over a cup of coffee in the firehouse kitchen. You know, I think I hear what you're saying there. Would you consider this to ultimately be a real-world team-building exercise? Oh, of course, of course. A lot of people fail to understand that teams don't just come together because your department says, here, these people are together. You, you if, if in a career department, you have to actively work to bring people together. Now, I've been a volunteer for nearly, nearly 45, well, a little over 45 years here in Adelphia, and it's different because at a given moment, you don't know what the team is going to be. So you have to work to have people drill together and uh, train together so that when they actually show up on the fire truck at the emergency, they can work together. But for example, yesterday we had a situation completely out of the normal for us. We, we were called out to do a water rescue on a dog at a lake at one of our senior citizens' developments. And, you know... We're not really a water rescue trained fire department. We we have a dive team in town. We have boats through the Office of Emergency Management. But we ended up tossing a ladder in and getting the dog out just by using skills that we had from other areas and applying to the situation in front of us. So if we weren't working together and training together and knowing how we operate together, this would have been tougher to do. But the dog is safe, and my buddies were just interviewed by New York uh, Channel 7 News at noon to to go on after uh, the evening news. And that's what counts a good outcome. The, the, the outcome is always the important part of it. Now, that fire in New York City yesterday, I feel so bad for those guys. They, you know, they lost a dozen people up in the Bronx. And you know that they're well-trained and they operate well together. But when the fire gets ahead of you, playing catch-up is never easy. So I've got those boys in my prayers today. It's got to be very difficult for those guys. You know, they always come across as the hard-boiled, tough firefighters. But you know that deep down inside it hurts when they lose like that. It always does. Now, there's three guys on the New York Fire Department that came out of out of our fire department here in Adelphia. They, uh, I don't know if any of them were at the fire yesterday, but uh, they wanted to be New York firemen, and they did what they had to do, and they became New York firemen. So I'm very proud of all three of them. Let me head back to the debriefing again here. When sure. When you're circled around or whatever you want to call it, do subordinate firefighters have the right to question your decisions? I I never had that happen, and here's what I always did to work to head that one off at the pass. The fire ground is not a democracy. You do not pull up in front of a burning building and call for a vote. How many in favor of inch and three-quarter? Who wants a two and a half? No. Well, aside from everything else, that would take forever to make decisions that way. Exactly. So the officer makes the call, but... Day-to-day in the station, the officer works to create participation and creates an understanding among the troops that work with him that he or she is there for them and that they can trust this officer to make a good decision. 
and, and when you create that democratic aura in the firehouse, when you get to the fire ground and you have to use the, uh, oh, I don't want to say fascist approach, but uh, bureaucratic, not bureaucratic, but it's just you do what you have to do. Now, a lot of people that I have seen in the fire service today have not done enough reading of the books. They go to the fire academy, they take a couple classes, and now, quote, they are the expert, unquote. Well, I've been in the business 50, 54 years now, yeah, between EMS and fire. And, you know, there's always that next lesson I have to learn right out in front of me. And if you're not reading the books, you don't know what's the current knowledge. Think, think about that. You see so many people on Facebook and the various social media talking about how they're the expert, how they do this and how they do that. Well, rather than chatting on the social media, they ought to pick up a book and sit down in their office or in their living room and read the book. And then work according to the latest leadership standards. I mean, you know, I can, I can speak with some authority. I've, ri I've written or co-authored... Uh, about 17 books and well over 3,000 articles, but there's always that new problem I'm going to face. So, luckily for me, one of the courses I love to teach is problem solving, and when I meet a problem, I use the system that I've learned over the last 50 years to address that problem. Matter of fact, that's what I'm speaking on at FDIC in Indianapolis in April, problem solving. But the key is gaining the respect of your people in the firehouse by allowing them to participate in the decision-making. For example, at this, the, that what line do you stretch discussion? You could have that over a cup of coffee in the kitchen. What do you think? What do you see? You, you, get your, your, you get your computer out and your electronic projector, and you put pictures of fires on the wall of the kitchen and ask your people, what do you think? What would you use on this? I mean, you got deck guns, you got... We, we actually don't use two and a half anymore. We have our our, uh, our nozzles on the three-inch line, so we can throw a lot of water, but we also have the uh, inch and three-quarter. So that kind of inch and three-quarter, we've got a blitz line that comes off the back of the vehicle. So you exercise these things during a drill so the people can get a feel for their capabilities, and then when you discuss it in the kitchen by looking at a particular series of fires, you can apply your knowledge to what's in front of your eyes. Now... Over the course of my career, I've read a lot of books. I mean, literally, when I was studying for captain back in the early 70s, I, I spent over $3,000 and $1970 on books because back then there weren't just six or seven books you had to study for promotion. You, you were liable to find something in the questions on the civil service exam from anything that had been written six months before or earlier from the test. So I, I've been into the books over the years, but... The key is you read it, you do it, you come back, you talk about it. How did what you did work? What might have been better? See, th this can be an internal critique within your own mind, or it can be external at the kitchen table, or my favorite, at the fire ground, where the hose is still laying there with the kinks in it, or the windows are still broken and letting the, the wind blow through the building, where it's all fresh in your mind.
That is some great advice. We're going to leave it there. Dr. Harry Carter, thanks for joining us on Code 3. My pleasure, Scott. As always, we've put some more information on post-fire critiques on the website, code3podcast.com slash critique. Check it out. Now here's Holly. Thanks, Scott. Ever notice that Scott always tells you that you can get a guest's book at our website, code3podcast.com? That's because we have links to order their books from Amazon on the episode's show notes pages. It makes it easy for you to get the books, and it helps support Code 3. When you buy Amazon through our website, we get a small cut too. And it doesn't cost you any more to order through us. Plus, there are other firefighter-related products there too. Take a look at Code3Podcast.com. And that is all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.